Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pensive Politics with Mr. Watson. I am indeed your host, Christian Watson. And with me today, I have a very special guest, Mr. Spike Cohen, a libertarian activist, head of Muddled Waters Media, and current libertarian vice presidential nominee for the Libertarian Party's 2020 presidential bid. How are you, Mr. Cohen? I'm doing great, Christian. How are you doing? By the way, you can just call me Spike. You don't have to call me Mr. Spike. Okay. Okay. Actually, let me make it. This is why I like people in the Libertarian Party. Because <laughs> when I talk to Nick, you know, it's just, it's very informal. It's very free flowing. It's not, I mean, if I were to talk to President Trump or Joe Biden, they would expect you to call them by formalities. Of course. But Libertarians understand that we are equal in the footing of our humanity, that every that each and every one of us are individuals, and all we're trying to do is ensure that our individuality can be experienced and lived and and, and unlocked, so to speak, in a way propitious to us as human beings. So I like that. I like that a lot. So I That's appreciate that. That's an excellent way of putting it. Also, I feel old when people call me Mr. Cohen, but I also like the way you said it too. I like the way you said it too. I'm going to start saying that that this is yes. know, propitious to who we are as people. It is. Oh yes, I I believe it is absolutely. There's a philosophical dimension to everything, in my opinion. That's but, so Spike, mm-hmm. let's let's start with the elephant in the room because there's a lot we got to talk about. Okay. But let's look at the elephant in the room. Sure. A lot of people, from what I have seen, from what I've seen in the media, from what I've seen on social media, a lot of people saw your ascension to the vice presidential spot on the ticket mm-hmm. as a blow to, in their view. This is their view. This is not my view. Mm-hmm. In their view, an otherwise serious campaign, and a the reason they saw this is because they they claim you know you, that you since you um, was with you were with Furman Supreme for a while and you did a few parody things and you used comedy as a political tool, right? To, you know, to reel people in all of that and and the the shirtless picture thing, which is I didn't understand that because I mean <laughs> you were at the beach and. When I go to the beach, I get shirtless. So yeah, it turns, but, out, well, turns out it's actually ideal to not be wearing a shirt at the beach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, unless you want to get drenched and sweat. And uh, right. anyway, anyway, but a lot of people have taken all of that, all of that stuff, all these dis- disjointed, disconnected, disparate actions that you've done to mean that you're not a serious candidate. So if those people are listening to this, 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 this audio right now, what would you tell them? What would be your message to them? Well, and I and I appreciate the opportunity to address this. So there are a few th- different parts to that, right? So the first part is is the vermin supreme aspect, which I think is what this all stems from. I think if I had just been someone who had my shirt off at the beach, people would be saying, "Okay, well, he had a shirt off at the beach. As long as he keeps it on the rest of the time, then you know we should be we should be good to go." But but because I was you know it's vermin supreme's running mate during the uh, I guess primary process, for lack of a better word, during the nomination contest, people are making some assumptions about my level of seriousness. Seriousness, um, I do believe uh, that satire has an appropriate place in politics. Um, there are well, let, let me let me step back. I the vast majority of my campaigning is serious. It was serious when I was Vermin's running mate uh, or proposed running mate for the delegates. It is now true as, uh, you know, now that I am Joe Jorgensen's running mate, it has always been true in my campaigning and uh, my my style of re- outreach. Uh, I do like using humor and entertainment when appropriate to reach out to people. Um, but I, I am a serious uh, campaigner and always have been. Uh, let's talk about satire for a moment and the reason why it has worked and the reason why Vermin has, was very effective with it. Um, there is a, a subgroup of people in this country who are so disgusted with the state of things uh, in this country and really in the world 
that they're done with politics. They don't want to vote. They don't want to hear a thing from a politician. They don't want to hear a thing from the government. And if you if you ask them, anytime there's focus groups that have been done on this, nearly 40% of voters, uh, or, or I guess just over 40% of voters who do not vote, uh, it, you know, if you when they have done focus groups and studies and surveys as to why they don't vote, overwhelmingly, they hear time and time again, the same things from these people. Government doesn't care about me. All politicians are liars. It doesn't matter what they have to say. They're just lying. If they get into office, they're just going to do whatever they want anyway. It's useless for me to vote. Uh, the system is rigged against us and there's no reason for me to even participate. These are pretty libertarian reasons for them to be divorcing themselves from uh, politics and, and the political discussion. And if we could reach them, uh, that they would be ideal libertarians. Many of them would, would intuitively get our message uh, because they already agree with it. The problem is they don't want to hear from any of us. They don't want to hear from any politician. And if someone shows up in those spaces and goes, hi, I'm such and such, and I'm with the Libertarian Party, and I'd like to tell you about self-ownership, they've already tuned us out. They don't want to hear it. They see politicians. So, they hear political. Go ahead. Yeah. And so the com the comedy, sorry to, cut, sorry to cut you off, but the comedy is a tool to overcome the apathy or the disgust or the barriers, the bull, the mental and cognitive bulwarks that so many Americans have towards exactly. their own system. Yeah. That's what it is. Okay. Yep. And, right. and, and it not only gets their attention, but it lowers their cognitive defenses. They're no longer, you know, hearing a politician that's either boring them or, or, or driving them away. They're hearing someone who's entertaining them. They want to hear more. They're enjoying themselves. They hear that there's an underlying political message, but right now they're just being entertained. But over time, they think, well, what is that underlining political message? How does right. that, you know, what is it that they want? And that's when we hit them with the message. And it's been very successful. With that said, the vast majority of the time, and especially in, in trying situations like what we're facing right now with all of the police brutality and everything else, I am approaching this the, the way with the, the level of seriousness that it deserves. And, uh, and so I have always primarily uh, uh, campaigned from a serious standpoint uh, with the idea that in appropriate times and spaces, I will use some humorous and entertaining approaches to reach them. Uh, but I am a serious candidate. Oh, absolutely. And I, I personally have had no doubt about that. I think you are a very serious individual. I think, I mean, even someone who's done a ounce of research on you would realize that you, that you explicitly say on one of your websites that yes, I literally use comedy so I can talk about property rights and nonviolence and non-aggression. Right, right, right. <laughs> yep. well, so exactly. I, I, I think it's quite self-evident, but a lot of people, and this is actually a mindset I wanted to explore with you. Mm -hmm. And because I think it's going to be a very, a very, very staunch a uh, you know, stalwart barrier against the Libertarian Party's ascension into more offices, especially the presidency. A lot of people are trapped by, by what I call on Brian Hyde's radio show a few days ago, mundane thinking. They're trapped by mundane thinking, meaning they are so enthralled or coaxed by the status quo, whether it's simply because it's, it's how things are or it's simply because they are very quote unquote pragmatic thinkers mm -hmm. into one to into believing that anything other than the status quo is quote unquote impractical or just not realistic or what have you. And I think that a lot of people, and this is unfortunate, believe that liberty, which is integral and inherent to each and every one of us, mm -hmm. is not practical. If it is put to the test vis-a-vis -vis the government's tools, which would be reclining several parts of the government from in getting involved in the human sphere and the social sphere and so on and so forth. How does the Libertarian Party and how do you particularly overcome the curse of false pragmatism, as I call it, 
And so, I call it false pragmatism because, well, I mean, practicality, practically, libertarian ideas and principles can be enacted on many different in many different ways. That's not the issue, right? But it's false practicality because folks think since it's not happening right now, it can never happen. So it's a sort of it's, that's why I call it a curse because it's literally stopping you from being able to do something that's beneficial to you, and in this instance, acknowledge human liberty. Well, and it's a social calcification. So there are some people absolutely. that will say, I absolutely do not agree with this thing, but it's how it's always been done. It's it's what allowed chattel slavery to exist in an otherwise largely moral society because it had been done that way. It's how you know a lot of the social ills that we have seen and ones that we continue to face today uh, continue to be allowed by people who typically are not being acutely... So there's two things here. One is people that have been conditioned into believing if something's been done this way, that it should remain that way. And what that is combined with is typically populations that are not as acutely affected as others. So for example, we are experiencing a lot of people right now who are saying, yeah, well, you know, police brutality is bad, but maybe that's how they have to do it. And, you know, we should, we should defer to what the you know police authority is on these subjects. It is not uncommon for these groups to, for these people to be members of groups that are not acutely affected by the police state, or at least they don't per- perceive themselves to be. An interesting uh, side note there is you saw how a lot of people got very, very, very upset during the lockdowns when they were at their worst. These were people that had never really experienced that kind of treatment uh, by the state and law enforcement directly on themselves. And so a lot of people, their status quo got very uh, upset and triggered there because they were used to, you know, mistreatment by police to be something that other people experienced and that, you know, was was just sort of the way things are. Now, suddenly it was something they experienced and it was a terrible thing. Uh, mm. and, and it is a terrible thing. Um, I will say this. I think that the percentage of people who are calcified in their thinking may be lower than sometimes we as libertarians may think they are. I think mm-hmm. that our biggest challenges are not just what you're talking about, that, that you know, that, that, uh, uh, you know, false status quo, that false practicality, uh, or that or what I'm calling social calcification, but basically the same thing. I think a lot of it is structural challenges that are imposed upon us by the FEC oh, and the state boards of election, voter and, registration. And, you know, yeah, the, yeah and yeah, voter registration and the ballot access laws, ballot access. the crony corporate media locking us out, only bringing us on to throw lob us with gotcha questions until they can finally trip us up and call us a joke as a result, which is a reason for us to subvert their system instead of playing by their rules. But I, I do think that. Yes, that that group exists out there, and they may not, they may largely not be reachable. Uh, which is why my focus has been on those who I think are reachable. And in this cycle, especially, I think those biggest groups are those who typically do not vote and are just utterly disgusted by how things are right now. Between the lockdowns and the pandemic, which was caused by the government not allowing healthcare workers to effectively test and treat, uh, you know, patients when it could have potentially been con- contained in the first few weeks that the outbreak was here, uh, to the the police brutality that they're seeing and 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 the and the doubling down on brutality as a way to manage protests against police brutality that they're seeing just sort of this military mindset with a president who's calling for total domination of the streets and yeah. using the military and basically turning our neighborhoods and our neighbors and loved ones into war zones and enemy combatants if they dare speak out against the brutality that entire uh, entire groups uh, of people within this country are facing um but i i think i would say that i think that that percentage of people who are as calcified uh, are not as high as we often think it is. Uh, and I think it's lower than it's ever been. I think that the silver lining, if it, if there is such a thing to the dystopian things that we've experienced this year has been that a lot of people's uh, equilibrium has been knocked off center. And a lot mm-hmm. of people that may have said that's the way it used to be done are now saying, you know what, let's not do it this way anymore because this way sucks. Yes. 
Oh, yeah. And every great hero, every great figure throughout history was shaken in some sort of way. They were shaken from their comfort. Yep, absolutely. Prometheus was shaken from his comfort. Mm-hmm. Prometheus decided to go risk his entire – well, in the myth, decided to go risk his entire life, his entire existence. So human beings could have the fire of knowledge right. and it could blaze forth civilizations from themselves and blaze forth their truest potential. So I think that you know, embodying that sort of Promethean spirit in our actions, which I think the Libertarian Party is probably the most coherent manifestation of that, is a very good thing if we're going to reach – those people who may be outside of the bounds of the calcification that you're talking about. It ain't for nothing uh, that our logo is a flame on a, on a torch. Absolutely. Yep. Illumination. Yep, Illumination. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, you mentioned police brutality several times. And so I've been, I have not been avoiding it. I've just, I've been trying to not immediately talk about it, but I suppose it is quite <laughs> important I, because simply because a lot of that's all people are focusing on right now is, is what happened with George Floyd, which was disgusting, yeah. reprehensible, malicious, demonic on every single level. But I want to ask you, in the context of your general philosophy, because you oh, let me ask you this first: Do you consider yourself philosophically, ideolog- ideologically, to be sympathetic to the more? Uh, Anarchist side of libertarianism. I am an anarchist, yes. Okay. And so, in con in in in, con, in that context, in context with that, your anarchism, mm-hmm. would you say that police brutality is a necessary consequence of the government, or is it an aberration of a government that is theoretically capable? and impaneled to protect life, liberty, and property. Which one is it? Is it a natural consequence of government, or is it an aberration of a government that has been hijacked by bad actors and is being used for bad ends? I think that it is an aberration that is the logical conclusion of government. So I think that if you look at the foundation, the, the uh, typical that, that was the perfect politician response, right? I think, yes, I think both of those are right. Uh, no, I, I, I think, I think, and maybe aberration is the wrong word. I think it is something that doesn't have to exist in perpetuity, but I think it is yes. the natural conclusion of allowing a state to exist unchecked. Because let's let's boil down what the state is. Um, and, and again, I, I'm using some anarchist thought here, but I, I think this is something that even pragmatists and constitutionalists can agree on. A, a, a government, a state, is an organization which by its own charter presumes the authority to do certain things. And those things are taxation and the creation of laws and the presumption of jurisdiction over certain areas and the creation of, of subdivisions of government uh, that you know exist under it, under its umbrella, and the creation of what maybe an, uh, a, a, a minarchist or a constitutionalist would call a civil society and what you know uh, an anarchist would call a coercive society. But ultimately, it is a government imposing itself and saying essentially, uh, because we wrote on these sheets of paper that we have the authority authority to do X. We are having the authority to do X and we are moving with whatever level of enforcement is necessary to uh, to impose our claim on anyone who would say otherwise. Um, and so to that extent, when you have an organization that is essentially a, a, a monopoly, if you will, on violence and force and authority, I think that it is a natural conclusion if that authority is not constantly being checked in whatever way possible, 
uh, preferably in nonviolent ways, but ultimately in whatever ways possible, the logical conclusion of that authority. And we've seen it here where, you know, what started as one of the most smallest, one of the most small, you know, minarchist governments ever has grown into the greatest empire, both here and abroad in human history. And it is a perfect example of how something that starts, you know, I call it minarchist chia pet. It just keeps growing. And I think that if the logical conclusion of the state, uh, if not constantly in a state of being checked by the citizenry, uh, is what we are experiencing now and even potentially worse. Okay. Uh, and for those of you who do not know, a minarchist is someone who holds that the government should be a sort of night watchman state, should only have a very, very few basic duties, military provision, perhaps contract enforcement, things like that. But beyond that, you wouldn't see the Department of Commerce, Education. You basically wouldn't have 99% of the, the, the federal department. The vast majority right of now. government would not yeah, exist. I, I, so, yeah. Precisely. And, so, and I, I identify as a minarchist personally. Okay. I think there is a need for government personally. Uh, I think there is a need to, for you know enforcement agencies to mm-hmm. preserve rights. But I think the government is drastically, drastically, drastically oversized and 99.9% of it needs to be shrunken down to private private activities. And but, we, agree, we agree on that. And I will also yes. say this because I want to clear the air on this as an, as an anarchist and as a you know more radical. I believe that you perfectly fit within libertarianism. I am glad you. that you are a part of our movement. <laughs> I am glad you. that you are a part of our movement. I think that the, anarchi- the, the libertarian spectrum is everything from anarchist to even some of the people that you know, are constitutionalists, but may still think yes. that the government needs to be, you know, enforcing the border and, and everything in between. Even though we, we may disagree in some cases vehemently on things, I think it is important, especially right now where we agree that we're headed at the wrong direction yeah, at the speed absolutely. of sound. We need to not only be stopping that movement, but moving towards what we all agree, we, the direction that right now, at least, we all agree that we that we need to be on. And, and, and if and absolutely. when we get there to minarchy, uh, and we get there and we go, hey, you know what? This is fine. I'm fine with that. If when we get there, we say, hey, you know what? These things would probably be handled by the free market just as well as government as well. Then we can have that dis- discussion. But at least at least for, you know, for the, the far foreseeable future, we are easily allies, in my opinion. I agree with you entirely. Absolutely. 100%. And I think that what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get people not to be scared when they hear these terms. When the people hear right. anarchy, since it has been so, they've been so conditioned in the current, you know, social scene, of course, by link, by, by, by certain academics, by certain political actors to, mm-hmm. to, con, to conflate anarchy with chaos, mm-hmm. they will immediately be scared and they'll, and they'll shut down. Oh, anarchy! I don't want to hear it. You're, you want me to die? You want to kill me? You want to destroy me? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 that's right. not what it is. All no, anarchy absolutely. is, yeah, yeah, is the absence of a centralized force. That is literally all it is. That is all it is. So I think that's important for folks to understand that. But within the context of our current government, the current, mm-hmm. current system, yes, there is currently a push, and you're you're running for vice president as well. Mm-hmm. There's currently a push to defund the police, to shift funds from police departments to more community oriented. Uh, initiatives, and personally, here's where I stand on it. I personally think that. That police departments that have a problematic history uh, with police with police brutality and misconduct and things of that sort should have their funds streamlined significantly. They should be imposed quotas with quotas that would uh, seem to correct their office activity. Unqualified immunity should be gone with should be done yep. with. Yes, absolutely. I think, I think I think there are absolutely those like those are three things I think would really help in reforming police departments in America. But do you believe? as a libertarian anarchist, and that's someone who wants to be vice president of the United States, Mm -hmm. that it is appropriate to not only defund the police departments around the country, blindly, just because they're police departments, but also to fund 
like have the government fund community initiatives when the community themselves wouldn't be the, the, the primary financier of those initiatives. So I suppose what I'm saying is, doesn't defunding the police simply shift the issue that we have from, from different hands, a different appearance, and a different ability, a different sort of status in the hierarchy, to a perhaps less forceful, less violent uh, entity that very well may be able to uh, not coerce but coax people into the community to believing a certain way if they want to be involved in those community activities. It absolutely- Do you think the government has the, the business funding, quote unquote, community initiatives, whatever that may be? Well, I don't think the government has business funding anything. But but in terms of it's specific to what you're saying within the, the context of our existing government, um, here, here's let's start with what we agree on and then we or what I know we agree on. And then we can dial back to the part about defunding police and what to do from there. Um, so I think we agree and qualified immunity. I just did a video yesterday yes. detailing some of the horrific abuses by police that, you know, they couldn't be sued for because they're just, you know, presumed to be able to do that if they decide for themselves that it was reasonable. I mean, qualified yeah. immunity is an absolutely disgusting legal doctrine. I think we can Agreed. all agree that needs to end. 100%. I think we need to end the civil asset forfeiture program, which yeah. is funded from the top and run from the top by the federal government uh, to the yep. states and lo- localities, to municipalities, uh, uh, and for those who don't know, civil asset forfeiture is where the state decides you probably committed a crime. So they take your stuff and uh, you don't have to be tried. Uh, it, they do it before trial, right at the Every time process. when you actually could have used the, that to fund your defense. And if somehow you're still able to be found not guilty, you then have to sue the government for your stuff back, even though you were determined not to be guilty. Uh, so that program obviously needs to end. I think that we need to be ending the 1033 military surplus program oh, 100%, where the federal 100%. government is dumping military equipment on the police for no mm-hmm. real stated reason. And I mean, we've, mm-hmm. we've, there were, I, I read an example of the uh, LA County school district applied for and got 23 grenade launchers. They don't need those unless they're, <laughs> unless they're going to wage war on people. Who, 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 who is the LA County school district waging war on? Like, and, and when asked why they said it was available, so they sought it. That's that's the mentality here. Oh, that MRAP's available. That, that mine resistant personnel carrier is available. Yeah, sure, I'll take that. Like it's it's absurd. And so then what you have is governments who are justifying their purchase of or or actually they're being they're being given military equipment, which lines them to make more military based decisions because otherwise the population's going, why the hell did you just get a tank and a helicopter? And they go, oh well, we need it. So then they engage in military actions against. Us and the they embody military to mindsets too. Yeah, they embody so, militaristic mindsets. And, and, and we have and a militaristic. And, yeah, go exactly. So that needs to end. Um, we need to be maximizing the civil liberties protections that are often denied us, especially those in the most marginalized among us: people of color, uh, the poor, the homeless, gender and sexual minorities, religious and ethnic mi- minorities, immigrants, um, and, and really all of us, but especially those most marginalized groups. Uh, so I think we all agree on that. Going back to your question about defunding the police, I believe that the police, the question of local police is not a question that should be answered one way or another by the federal government. I think that there is no mention of it in the Constitution. And according to the 10th Amendment, anything that is not delegated to the federal government explicitly by the the Constitution Mm -hmm. is to be left to the states or even the people. And so in my mind, the question of defund, I think that 
at the federal level, all funding and direction should end. Uh, other than I believe that uh, if we are to have a Department of Justice, part of its role should be to actively pursue people who are not doing justice, people who are being abusive and abusing their authority and using the, the, the federal government to go after them for these civil rights and, and, and constitutional violations that they are often engaging in. Short of that, I don't think that the government should be involved. Uh, and I think that even that should largely be left to the states if at all possible. So the question of defunding government and where that money should go, I think should be as localized as humanly possible. I think it should be those communities, those cities, those counties, those states, but preferably just those specific regions deciding what level of policing they want or do not want. Uh, Going to your question of... Because right now, and this is why as libertarians, we need to seize this, this... you know, narrative as much as we can. Right now, this conversation is obviously being dominated by progressives because conservatives, at least right now, uh, you know, the ones that were saying that, you know, the police were engaging in tyranny against them because they couldn't go outside are now suddenly, you know, friends of the police again, and the police need to go out and, uh, and, you know, dominate the streets. And, and of course, the progressives are often just as hypocritical. They were the ones saying, obey the cops, obey the cops, don't go outside. Now, suddenly they don't think that anymore. So there's hypocrisy to go all around with, with all sorts of pundits. But with that said, this conversation about defunding the police is largely being dominated by progressives. And as such, their, their, their talk about defunding the police isn't and cut taxes accordingly. It's and, and shift that into other programs. Now, I will say, I would rather money be spent on keeping someone from being homeless or helping someone out of addiction than to finance their being choked to death in front of a crowd while they beg for them to stop. Um, If I had to choose between those two things. Obviously, as an anarchist and as a libertarian, I believe that the these things on both ends are best left to the free market. Uh, but I will say that from a measure of harm reduction, anything that gets us to a society that is less authoritarian is good in general. Um, I am not in favor of the welfare state, but I'm not in favor of the regulatory state that that created the necessity of the welfare state in general. So my, my way of dealing with the question of welfare and funding of community <sighs> issues is to remove the regulatory burdens that have... Rem- have removed the first several rungs from the economic ladder and have entrenched and enforced generational poverty. And Mm. if we end those and we allow Mm -hmm. people to build themselves up and if we stop criminalizing charity and mutual aid so that it's no longer illegal to feed the homeless without a license, we could go on all day, all of the different things that are in place that keep people in poverty and make it nearly criminal for them to even try to get out of it. If we remove those, then a lot of these questions go away. And I think we can agree with the progressives on that, that if we can get rid of those burdens, then a lot of this problem goes away. And we th- people won't want to, to have ta- be taxed to, to pay for these programs because they'll have graduated out of it and they will have lifted themselves and their loved ones and their communities out of it using the, the market that we that we believe should be set free and the people that should be set free. That's some powerful stuff right there. Thank you. Gen- genuinely. No, sir, seriously. I think that's that's one of the more power. You're not going to see a politician. A regular politician from one of the two parties give that kind of answer. You just won't. No, no, you're not going to see it. You're not going to see it because guess what? A lot of them are are, are hooked up to 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 talk to to their to their consultants and their talking points and things like oh, that. Yes. They, they they can't be honest, not even with them public, not even with themselves, even. So I, I think that's quite refreshing to hear. Um, do, I wanted to stay on this topic, but 
this talk of minarchy and this talk of slimming the government and a harm reduction, you know, mm-hmm. which reminds me immediately of John Stuart Mill, one of my favorite political thinkers. Yep. It reminds me also of uh, someone I'm sure you're quite familiar with, Lysander Spooner. Uh, oh, yes. for, for, those, for those who don't know, <laughs> he was a famous Boston anarchist, I believe, mm-hmm. Spooner. And yep. he wrote several immensely influential, in my at least in my opinion, they were influential in terms of how very significant um, pieces about certain things, women's suffrage. He was against all suffrage because in his opinion, suffrage was an enforcement of illegal force, you know, the constitutional authority, things like that. All this talk has gotten me to thinking about the kind of government that would exist with a consistent stream of libertarian party individuals within our current government and how that government would interact with other governments around the world. So how do you think a government predicated upon the truth of individual liberty that is just teeming with the Promethean fire of illumination that understands the importance of natural rights, how would a government like that react to a government like Russia or China, both of whom I would I would hope you would agree are pretty totalitarian and authoritarian in their Oh, rights. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. How would a government, how would a libertarian government react to governments like that? Well, I can tell you, I think that, and, and this is sort of from our platform in terms of our foreign policy, I think that when you govern from freedom and people see how incredible it is, it is impossible for that flame, as you put it, to, to be put out anywhere. And I think we have done a, a, a somewhat of a disservice. You know, one of the big phrases that I heard when I saw the, the Hong Kong protesters waving American flags, people kept saying, how about we be the America that Hong Kong thinks we are? And, you know, it was it was kind of a snarky thing at first, but then I realized how powerful that was. Here they are. They're over there. You know, they're saying we want to be more like America. And the fact is, we have been unfortunately sliding towards what what, you know, they've been facing for several decades now. We looked during the Soviet Union. It was impossible for the Soviet Union to keep away the spark of, of, and again, America was far from perfect in that situation and we had all sorts of problems, but in comparison, we were far freer and, and even still are freer than what they have experienced. And it was impossible to keep them away from that. And in the era of social media, where people can see an HD, you know, v- you know, virtual reality it, it, from anywhere on earth in real time, it is mm-hmm. impossible for a, for authoritarian societies to hide from their people what a free society would look like. So when I hear, for example, and I don't think this is necessarily what you're asking, but I've heard it before. If we were more libertarian and we weren't, you know, running an empire around the world, who would protect us against, you know, China or or Russian oh, aggression? Yeah, I don't care about that. I don't care yeah. about. I think I think the American people and the an American defense force would protect America against aggression. Okay, I'm more interested in how how exactly diplomatically, you know, within the, within the White House, within the State Department, how do you think a libertarian government? Would interact with governments who are manifest. Oh, okay, okay, fair enough. Um, belligerent yeah. and you know, I think a, we a, would, in the same way that we would be using our bully pulpit here to draw a, a line in the sand between the people who are removing the, the the boot of government from the neck of the people as they seek the uh, solution, seek to to find voluntary solutions to the problems that they face that are often imposed upon them or made worse by government. And on the other side of that line, the people who wish to keep that boot on their neck and to allow continued unnecessary harm for no other reason than to preserve their own power and influence. We would use that same bully pulpit abroad and we wouldn't be hypocrites in doing so 
though, as we often are now, or, or, or as our government often is now, um, we would have completely free and open trade, which would uh, uh, allow people to build themselves up uh, and see how good of a of a of a um, a trading partner America and American businesses and the American people are. We would influence others in in demonstrating how peace and freedom work, and Absolutely. it would be impossible for a. Uh, you know, a China, which again, you know, if you look at our level of aggression on the world compared to China's, it's it's not even comparable. Uh, you know, China's basically asserting themselves in their local region, and we're asserting yep. ourselves in that same local region and every other. But it it, it would be impossible for, or very improbable for another uh, you know entity to take our place because there wouldn't be any demand for it. The people would increasingly demand freedom that they saw right. from us and from those in our orbit. Um, and I think that that would over time influence uh, others. Would it would it be perfect? Would it be a utopia of perfect freedom? Of course not. But I think that we the the movement towards freedom, the domino action of uh, an increasing number of people feeling that spark of, as you call it, the Promethean spark of liberty, mm-hmm. uh, experiencing it and seeing how it can actually be in a major country such as the US, that's not going to be something, that's not going to be a flame that any authoritarian government can ever truly put out. Great. Absolutely great. And on China, one last question before we wrap up. Sure. Uh, China, I mean, a lot of people have taken issue with China's legitimate free market investments in, in Jamaica and a lot of Africa mm-hmm. and their, uh, their, their naval fleets presence within Latin America and so on and so forth. So in other ways in which China maintains its image and it maintains its presence economically and militarily uh, beyond their, you know, Asia, beyond their seas. How do you think, what do you think is the appropriate response? Do you think that China is fine to invest in whatever country it wants to invest, even if it's using that investment as a means to seize power or, uh, you know, spread their policies to that country? Or do you think that there should be a denouncement, if nothing else, of course, uh, against that kind of activity under a Jorgensen-Cohen presidency. I think that one way that that would completely end, and Christian, this is something that isn't talked about a lot, so I'm actually- It's not. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up. Let's talk about what created the Chinese monolith that we have right now. The regulatory and tax burden on American labor and production has gotten so high mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the best way- to, and there are many implications to this that I'll be getting into shortly. It is so high that it is cheaper to have a given good or, or product made in China and in other countries as well, but primarily in China on the other side of the planet and then shipped all the way back here to be sold here. Even with the tariffs they are adding, it still costs less, considerably less, sometimes half as much to do it that way as it does to just have it made up the road from where the person that's buying it lives. And here's, here's, this was done intentionally. The large businesses that, that, you know, crony businesses that pushed for these regulations, they knew it would raise their bottom line and that they would have to go to China and they were fine with it. You know why? Because they knew their smaller competitors couldn't do that. They couldn't afford the hundreds of millions of dollars or billions or tens of billions of dollars it costs to retrofit everything over there and to build relationships with dictatorial regimes so that they could Mm -hmm. use slave labor in foreign countries on the other side of the planet. They knew 
in the same way that they know that every other regulation they put forward, it harms them slightly, but not as much as their competitors. And they control how the regulations work and they can get exemptions and they can continue to benefit at the expense of literally every other person in the country. And this is a perfect example. So not only is there an economic implication uh, in terms of how it has shut down, shuttered small businesses left and right and led to a, a massive increase in income inequality, because if you aren't simply working as either a small business owner or someone who works for one of these monolithic companies for at or around minimum wage or just above it, then you're some oligarch that's making money by working, you know, building these relationships with tyrannical governments. So not only mm-hmm. is there that, so there's that economic implication, there's the environmental implication of the exponential growth of the carbon footprint of every single good and product you, you have built because it's built on the other side of the planet and shipped over here instead of small batch produced here and, and shipped, you know, within a matter of, you know, uh, miles from where you are, a few miles from where you are. But then there's also the geopolitical implication. This government has grown on crony money. The Chinese government has grown and and become the monster that it's turning into. Really, just a, a mini version of the U.S. empire, but truly, uh, you know, the next challenge to that empire that wants to be another empire itself on the strength of that relationship. Simply <laughs> removing that regulatory, those regulatory and tax burdens from the American mm-hmm. people and the American businesses would not only do great environmental uh, healing because now things could be made here and not shipped as far. It would not only do great economic and financial healing because of the amount of things that could be produced here again and businesses and jobs that would be able to open up and be returned to here again, but it would also be a massive blow to the dictatorial governments, the largest one being China, but also Russia and others as well, Mm -hmm. that that are building these new empires entirely on slave labor relationships with Western crony, big multi multinational businesses. So simply removing the boot from the neck of the people and allowing that to be done here solves so it, it, it kills so many birds with one stone. One of those birds being the, the growing Chinese empirical imperial threat to the world, not just us. Absolutely. That is probably the most resounding critique I have heard of the Chinese government from a libertarian, actually in any political, any political context, actually. So I appreciate that very much, uh, Spike. You are phenomenal. You are a brilliant orator. And I think that uh, Ms. Jorgensen should be very happy to have you as her pick. <laughs> Absolutely. You. That means a lot. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening in, and I appreciate it. Uh, next week, we have uh, Ms. Jorgensen herself, and so I'm very excited for that. Uh, but until then, until next time, do, guys. Do, uh, it's Christian, I'm sorry. Do you mind if I just plug our campaign real quick oh, and no, please, direct people to do. our website? Yes, my apologies. Please do. Yeah, please yeah do, no problem. Do. No problem at all. So uh, – as, as Christian was saying, uh, he's going to have Joe on next, and I, I'm sure you'll enjoy that every bit as much, if not more than this. Uh, I do invite you, uh, if you enjoyed what, what I had to say and want to find out more, uh, be sure to go to JOJ2020, JOJ2020.com uh, to find out more. Uh, if you look for Joe Jorgensen or Spike Cohen on any social media, you'll be able to find us. My social media on Twitter is at RealSpikeCohen, uh, and on Facebook, it is uh, Facebook.com slash LiterallySpikeCohen, uh, or if you just look for Spike Cohen, you'll 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 find me. Uh, imagine a future in which you have thousands of dollars more in disposable income because you're no longer being taxed uh, to fund American imperialism here and abroad. Imagine a a, rea- a world in which the 
victims of the war on drugs are set free. Imagine a world in which our loved ones are brought home from the endless war and the uh, epidemic of PTSD and traumatic brain injury and the epidemic of veteran suicide is put to an end, not to mention the endless harm that has been happening overseas at the expense, at, at the, at the, at the, to the benefit of this empire and the military industrial complex. Imagine an end to all of that. Imagine mm-hmm. a future in which your children's education is taken out of the hands of bureaucrats and politicians and cronies in Washington, D.C. and put back where it belongs with you and your educators and your children. Imagine a world in which you are freer, happier, and healthier, and in which your children have an even brighter future than you ever could have previously imagined. That is a world and a nation that Joe Jorgensen and I want to create. And if you would like to be a part of that, we welcome you. We welcome your donations if you're able to do so at donate.joj2020.com. We welcome you sharing our content so that people can find out more about this message. And we hope to have your support and your vote in November. Thank you. Absolutely beautiful. All right, guys, you heard that. Hope you go out and check check them out. But until next time, guys, stay pensive.